Tonight, we are talking to three private eyes, and they've been very private and very ocular for a long time. Uh, they are Paul Ciolino, Steve Kirby, and Mike Carlson, all of them the presidents of their own organizations. We'll say something about their firms in a while, but let's get right down to it. What's the difference between a private eye and what would have to be called a public eye, that is, somebody who works for a police department? Well, Mel, basically, uh, we work for anyone that could come in and write a check, and uh, public people work for the community and for the city or town or wherever they work at, but we, we work for attorneys, private individuals, private corporations, wh whoever shows up and wants to hire us and to do an investigation for them. I spent a lot of money in my time buying various services, but as far as I know, I've never hired a private detective. Under what circumstances might I want to avail myself of your services? Steve Kirby. Uh, if somebody stole something from you and you didn't think that the uh, public law enforcement was doing an adequate job, if you were accused of a crime, uh, you certainly might want an investigator. Those would be two prime examples that a private citizen might come in. If they have a missing child, they might mm -hmm. come to us. Missing persons would be a big category, I suppose. For our company, it was a much bigger category back in the 70s, in the early, especially in the early 70s when there were a lot of runaway, a lot more runaways mm -hmm. at the time. I, it hasn't been a big factor, but different agencies specialize. Some specialize in domestic matters, just like a, some attorneys specialize in domestic matters. A guy I knew, an assistant professor at a university I used to work at, not the University of Chicago, but before I came to Chicago, was living with his lovely girlfriend. Uh, and something went wrong. And suddenly she left him and left town, the town being another town, not Chicago. Uh, and uh, he was bereft and he was overwhelmed and distraught and he was sort of dying of a broken heart. But, and he couldn't find her. He begged all the people who knew her and who might know where she is, but none of them could give him information or would give him information. He finally hired a private detective uh, or a private firm to go searching for her and he probably spent three or four thousand dollars on it as they followed all sorts of false leads. And they never found her, but she showed up about seven or eight months later saying she was sorry she had absconded. She had been in France and for a while in Mexico, and now she had come back. So he spent the four thousand uh, dollars. I don't know what the guys who were working for him were doing or how they, how would you go about something like that? The girlfriend disappears. How would you try to track her? Well, initially, you know, we. We used to be able to run, you know, credit checks and stuff like that, uh, uh -huh. but now with the new uh, privacy laws, we can't use the social security numbers, and it makes it, you know, kind of difficult. But you can run through driver's licenses and things like that. Possibly get uh, and now with the cell phones, maybe get cell phone mm -hmm. records that type. Well, of it turned stuff. out in this case, actually, she had rather shortly after she absconded, she had got on a plane and gone to France, and she hung around in Paris uh, with some people she knew, and then she wandered France for a while. And uh, ultimately, she came back to Mexico, of all places, and lingered there for a week or, or a month or two, I think, and then came back to Columbus, Ohio. That's where it was. But why couldn't they track her in Paris? They might be able to if they had the right resources. But a, a lot, today, it's a lot easier. You know, I mean, we're in an information age This goes now. back to the 1960s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're in a computer age. We're in an information age. I mean... Uh, it's very difficult to disappear on purpose now. You you can do it, but you have to be a very disciplined person. And you can't be calling your mother or your sister or your best friend. You can't be sending Christmas cards home. You can't make any contact with anyone you had contact with in the old days. 
So you can disappear, but you better be very, very disciplined to do it. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get found out. Somebody like us will find you. And we do it through technology and just basically interviews and hard work. Mm -hmm. So if that same case erupted today, same problem, and the guy came to you and says, find my missing girlfriend, how would you go about it? Well, first thing we want to do is we want to get our cell phone because people just cannot stay off the phone today. I, I had an old criminal defense client tell me years ago, the only thing a phone is good for is ordering a pizza. Beyond that, it's not good for anything else. Uh -huh. and, and he was pretty much right because... Whenever you get on the phone, you leave a record. You leave a, a fingerprint, as you Is that know. true? Uh, absolutely. I've got a cell. I got my little crusty you, cell you, phone right you, here. Here we, it is. Listen, we could tell you every call that's been made out of this studio for the last year if we, if we had to. Yeah? And how long you talked to them for and what number you called and who you spoke with. But on my cell phone as well? Absolutely. Home. Even easier. Really? Yes. Well, the company will give you that information? Well, the company sometimes won't give it to you, but if there's a police report that somebody's missing or, uh, you know, there's foul play suspected are more than happy to cooperate with a letter from an attorney or a law firm or, or a police agency. Now let me go around the table. You guys specialize a bit. Let's get clear as to what your separate practices are. Uh, Paul Cialino. Criminal defense, mostly homicide, death penalty, sexual assault cases. You say mostly homicide. You mean defending people against charges of homicide. Right. P people who have been accused of murder or some type of violent crime. And you've worked, of course, in tandem with our old friend Rob Warden, who's got, who's got a lot of people out of the death house. Mostly, I got them out, and Rob took all the credit. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I've worked with Rob for, yeah. for over 20 years. We're, we're dear friends. Great and very important uh, work that you've done. Uh, Steve Kirby, president of Edward R. Kirby and Associates. That was your father, right? Yes, he was. Uh, our firm is a we're a general firm, but uh, not particularly specializing in in, uh, in a specialty. But primarily, we do a lot of fraud investigations. We for businesses, we do intellectual property cases that involve uh, trademark infringements, patent infringement, mm -hmm. counterfeit product investigations, and we do backgrounds for business. Some so, such as Major I, League Baseball. Steve works for Major League Baseball. and, and Really? And, you know, if there's somebody's out there printing hats, they shouldn't be printing. Steve's out there ruining their life for today. Printing hats, you said? Well, we, we invest for a lot of the fashion companies and people that own trademarks and uh, for... Oh, that's for trademark and Trademark infringement. We do a lot of work for some of the motion picture industry. We do work for uh, watch companies. And so when people are manufacturing uh, counterfeit products, we investigate those. I get sale five ads a day on my email for for fake Rolexes. I'm getting them too. Yeah, we all get we, them. The, um, they investigate those. There's, those are like ghosts, though. You know, they, they shut down today and they open up again yeah. tomorrow. They're, they're Difficult, but not impossible. And people that um, get into that eventually get caught. And they either get sued or they get arrested. And some it's the cost of doing business, and others puts them out of business. Now, going around the table to Mike Carlson, uh, president of Probe Incorporated. You guys have a specialty. Yeah, we specialize in fire and explosion investigations, uh, product liability type stuff, a lot of work for insurance companies, some major uh, vehicle manufacturers. And we do take, uh, on occasion, you know, some pro bono defense work and that type of thing. When it comes to fire, what you're dealing with there are fires uh, set by arsonists of one sort or another, usually. Is that right? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, we get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, bad products out there. Um, you know, an example would be some of the lighters that are uh, attracted to kids, you know, when they start fires in the house, which I guess... Technically, is an intentionally set fire, but it's you know more of a product issue. But uh, the landlord who decides he's going to get rid of the tenement that he owns, 
because it isn't producing enough and he doesn't want to bring it up to what city code requires uh, and he does have insurance if he then gets somebody to burn that place down so as to close out the deal and make a profit that's something you're going to go after we'll go into it uh, Steve and I did a lot of that uh, years ago uh, in the city primarily but we'll also at that point like Paul was saying you know we're somewhat different than law enforcement but in those types of cases we work very closely with law enforcement because oftentimes the insurance companies will have uh, you know they'll put more money into a case so they're able to you know because they've got a lot at stake on a, on a major loss and then we'll work closely like with the uh, Chicago bomb and arson's got excellent investigators uh, occasionally ATF uh, Cook County's investigators state fire marshal you mm -hmm. know so we all you know work together you know each handling its own little niche well we are tonight going to sample some of your adventures and talk about uh, the virtues the uh, uh, of the work that you do the highs the lows the boredom and the excitement. And we'll do that by examining some of the cases you've been involved in, whether recently or even a long time ago. And I, just before we stop for some commercials, I give you this for the basic agenda. Let's look at the, the most dramatic of all crimes, murder. Uh, Hamlet says uh, of murder, murder most foul, as in the best it is, but this most foul and unnatural. Think of some foul and unnatural murder that you've had a hand in pursuing and solving. We return directly to Paul Cialino, Steve Kirby, and Mike Carlson after this. We're talking with three of the most uh, best established and most interesting uh, private eyes in town. They are Paul Cialino, owner of Paul J. Cialino and Associates, an investigative firm, of course. Steve Kirby, president of Edward R. Kirby and Associates, and Mike Carlson, president of Probe Incorporated. And the greatest of all crimes in terms of its dramatic significance and in terms of uh, the moral revulsion that it rouses in all of us is indeed murder. That's greater than uh, grand larceny in terms of the moral revulsion that it does arouse. Uh, some quotes, some relevant quotes. Blood, though it sleep a long time, yet never dies. The gods on murderers fix revengeful eyes, says George Chapman in the 16th century, the 17th century. Um, William Shakespeare says, For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. But going up to the last century, Sigmund Freud says, The very emphasis of the commandments, Thou shalt not kill, makes it certain that we are descended from an endlessly long chain of generations of murderers, whose love of murder was in their blood, as it is perhaps also in ours. The suggestion is murder is there and will always be the ultimate falling off of mankind. And we always have to do something about it. The public requires that murders be uh, tracked to their origin and that murderers be punished. But lots of murderers get away with it, don't they? Well, I think in Chicago, probably, the, the homicide solve rate's somewhere around 50%. So if you, but if you go to the gang crimes, the organization murders, there are... Hundreds and hundreds of them, and only two or three have been solved. And nobody really, no, they, they solved the nobody vast majority cares, of gang crimes. It. Nobody cares, really. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, we, we call it um, misdemeanor murder, and that's when gangsters kill gangsters. No one gets too upset about uh -huh. it. Only people get upset about murders when they kill somebody who's usually Caucasian and lives in a middle-class area and may have mm -hmm. been somebody or a child or, or someone who's attractive. Uh, the victim has to be Caucasian. If the victim is black... 
We don't care? Is that what you're saying? I'll tell you. The black victim gets killed in a homicide. It's on page three. White, young, 15-year-old gets killed in a homicide. It's on page one. Isn't don't, that terrible? Don't have to listen to me. Just look at the Tribune no, or sometimes every true. day. It is true. Yeah. Yeah. You've all been involved in tracking murders, even though you're in the private investigation side of uh, detection. Let's How does it happen that private detectives will get involved in murder investigations? Well, one, for example, we had a young man, this was several years ago, was murdered on the south side. Yeah. Um, again, it was a page 56 murder uh, on the paper. And all of a sudden, the insurance company... was a black person? Yes. Yeah. Uh, modest means, not well-educated, worked basically doing, as a handyman. Um, but the insurance company got interested, and nobody was really too interested in this homicide except the insurance company because, lo and behold, they found out this guy had a $200,000 life insurance policy on him. And that got their interest up. You have to understand one thing is that 90% of our cases, whether it's a homicide or a trademark infringement or a theft or a fraud, we can call it a lot of things, but most of our cases are about money. And that's why a client hires us. Well, the insurance company would hire you on this because they could get out of paying the 200000 if what? If there was, in this case, that there was no insurable interest. What in does this that mean? Person. means that the person that took out the ins I can't take out a life insurance policy on you. And then kill me. And then, or kill you, or take even, or just take it out. I can't right. take, take a life insurance policy on you because I have no insurable interest in you. I'm uh -huh. not a family member. I'm not an employer. I'm not a business partner. Um, if, if you die, although we'd miss your so show. So this fellow was I'm, covered with $200,000 yes. worth, but the question was, who, why did this an other individual take out an insurance policy on Who was life? the other individual? He was his employer, and he took it out under a key, what he called a key man insurance policy. We, Although he was paying this person about $50 a week uh -huh. to do odd jobs, and, and what it turned out is he wasn't involved in the murder, but he knew that this person was running with a bad crowd, was cheating drug dealers, was dealing drugs, and he was essentially taking out a bet that within a few years, this person probably wouldn't be alive. And he initially, the bet paid off for him until, the until we did the investigation, proved no insurable interest, and the insurance company in this case didn't uh, pay off. But in doing so, we also were able to identify who the shooter was, and we turned that information over to the Chicago police. How'd you get, how did you solve that? By talking to people, interviewing. Just poking around the neighborhood, and they were Hitting able to the identify the murderer. Hitting the street. Yeah, which is what cops ordinarily do also, working for the police department. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's the easiest way to solve a murder. Ask actually, you got to get out there and the actually talk to people. It's tough to yeah. do it sitting so at a desk behind the computer. Yeah. Someone knows who did it. And our job is to go out and uh -huh. and find that person. And that got the insurance company off as well, did it? Yes. <laughs> Curious. I didn't realize that you can. That's yet another way to augment your income, to bet that somebody who works for you is going to be killed. I, I've worked cases where foster parents have insured the life of foster children and then uh -huh. murdered them in hopes oh. of collecting the insurance oh money. Oh, my Lord, really? And, and, and that is what has brought the heat down on them. Not so much that they committed the murder against this child, but that they tried to collect a quarter or half a million dollars on them. That is what got the interest of the authorities, was the cash. Let's hear some details on one such case. I worked a case in Bolingbroke several years ago where a foster family, uh, upper-middle-class family uh, on the outside, had the care of three children. And they basically tortured and tried to kill two of them and collect half a million dollars of insurance money on them. And this was a family who was very upper middle class. How horrible. 
it, it was it was one of the worst crimes I've ever been involved in. Uh, that when we did the autopsy on the one daughter, she had so many wounds we literally could not count them. That we just could not keep track of the number of wounds on this child's well, body. Well, how did you pin these murders on these parents? Well, at the time I was working for the state and I was running a child homicide unit, uh -huh. and the, they were foster parents, and they came to my office and told me that sick children were sick and they wanted to get them admitted to a hospital. And I sent them to Silver Cross Hospital in Joliet. And about three minutes later, I got a phone call saying that these kids were, uh, one was dead and one was dying. And it looked like someone had murdered them. And the investigation just unfolded from that point on. But how did you tie it down? Well, tied it down is basically, I mean, the, the physical evidence was overwhelming. They had been tortured and, and killed. They were hit in the head with hammers, handcuffed, starved to death. Uh, just kept uh, kept out in a garage, handcuffed to lawn furniture in December after they'd been put in a wet bathtub in the hopes that they would die naturally so that they collect the insurance money. And the investigation unfolded over a number of days and weeks by interviewing the children, the biological children in that home who knew of the torture and, and stuff that was going on in there. It would seem to be rather, uh, uh, rather stupid to insure such children who are in your care as foster as far as the kids. Uh, it, Milt, it's my experience that people generally are not that bright. Yeah. And, and the ones who commit murder are, are really down at low in the gene pool. They think they're smart, but but it's a pretty tough crime uh, to get away with if, it, you know, in general, if someone's really interested and really looking at it. Mike Carlson, has murder entered your practice as well? Uh, we've in investigated some fires that were uh, on the civil end, you call it incendiary, on criminal and arson. Uh, you know, we get on the periphery because the insurance company, again, as Steve said, a lot of it's financially in induced. You know, they want to know what happened. We have been called in on occasion uh, to supplement testimony of the either, you know, law enforcement, you know, when they did make an arrest. Some of the fires uh, you investigate may have yes, fatal consequences. Exactly. Yeah, I've done, mm -hmm. uh, it's been a few years, but there were some Steve and I did in Uptown where people were hurt. Uh, I did one in Chicago several years ago where the, well, I, I can't say for sure it was the owner, but somebody went in and torched the building with people inside of it. They poured gasoline all over. An with empty the apartment. intention of killing those people, or no, is that was, just an just, accidental just to burn the building down. Yeah, we'll go back to the bad gene pool. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and you've had uh, you know incidents in Chicago where you know they they will pour gasoline all over the back porch sometimes for revenge, sometimes to burn the building down, mm -hmm. and then people can't get out, especially children. Um, and I've gone in on what you know some that were suspected arsons and turned out to be accidental. You guys have to get probably get pretty hardened, just the way surgeons get pretty hardened at the sight of blood and death. Do you do you as well? You have to disassociate because, especially me, I do criminal defense work. Yeah. And, and uh, frequently, unfortunately, I have clients who are innocent that are accused of murder. Uh, they have a bad habit of clinging to you and, and, and wanting to become part of your family. And it's hard to resist that because they're in a foxhole with you, and, and you're their only hope of saving them. And so you, you really got to try and disassociate because they will drag you down with them. Emotionally, it, it could take a big toll. And you have to train yourself not to allow yourself to get close to these people because they'll suck you in. They'll just suck you dry of everything. The people who are falsely accused. Right. right. Yeah, and the people who are falsely accused are the worse. I mean, if they're sitting in a prison cell for 10, yeah. 12, 15 years, and, and you've, after a, a lengthy investigation, determined they're innocent, I mean, you start to you know, you start to commiserate with them all the time, and and they could just, they just take it all out of you. So you can't, you can't allow yourself to get that way. We had one of those guys that was on this program together with our mutual friend, Rob Warden, only about a month ago. Sure. I forget his name. Do you? He's this probably is the, one of mine. 
This yeah. is the fellow who's now a vegetable farmer out. That would be Gary Gauger up in the exactly. County. That's who it was. A yeah. Wonderful Gary. human being. Very Great nice guy. Man. Yes. He's here with his wife. Yeah. Good. Good yeah. people. And, and and one of the people who have survived this uh, tragedy. Were you involved in investigating that a, one? A very limited matter. That was mostly Northwestern's doing. I, I'd love to take credit for it, but yeah. I really didn't have a lot to do with that one. He was accused of murdering his parents. Yes, a horrible crime, ridiculous. Uh, his parents were killed by the Chicago Outlaws motorcycle gang. Yeah, uh, blind man could have followed the trial uh, trail and and invented, but the McHenry County Sheriff's Department, McHenry County State's Attorney's Office, took the easy route and charged a guy who'd never been in trouble, never committed a violent act, with the murder of his parents. And then said he confessed when they didn't document it, they didn't videotape it, there was no witnesses to the confession. And Gary spent a number of years in prison on death row for the murder of his mo elderly mom and dad for a crime he, he didn't come close to committing, had no knowledge of, no... I mean, he found their bodies. But lazy law enforcement yeah. will do that often, and that's what happens. Well, there are some cops who are just a little bit dumb on the job and screw things up out of inattention or maybe out of incompetence. There are also some cops who are uh, rogue cops and are rather mean bastards uh, who have to be tracked. And I know that one or two of you have been involved in investigations of that sort. When we return after some impending commercials, let's talk about your investigations of police malfeasance. We will be directly back to Paul Cialino, Steve Kirby, and Mike Carlson after this. And back to Mike Carlson, Steve Kirby, Paul Cialino. Uh, each of them runs his own private investigation firm. And uh, between the three of you guys, there's an awful lot of experience. In any individual uh, biography, there's an awful lot of experience. What do you know about, indeed, I asked this question earlier because Steve Kirby was telling me about an investigation he's been involved in about a rogue cop. Is that a very common problem? I think it's an uncommon problem when you look at the the number of law enforcement people that are out there and the number of cases that they handle fairly, judiciously, intelligently, and with the public's best interest in mind. So we're talking about a few bad apples rather than the rest of the barrel. Yeah, and sometimes the, the problems that result from a, a bad prosecution isn't necessarily that they're corrupt, it's that they get a little myopic and they, they don't have the, maybe they don't have the experience and they, they, they focus on a, a given sub suspect they're convinced that person did it and there's evidence to the contrary that they're just I don't know why they ignore it but but they do but every so often somebody gets into a uniform who really should be in a prison uniform absolutely and you were telling me about one such before we went on the air well I think that was more that was actually Paul I think that was that has that case out in uh, Marengo oh I, yes. I, have a, I have a current right. case in Marengo where a young officer who was uh, fired for brutality in Waukegan, gets a job in Marengo, Illinois, less than a year later, uh -huh. and commences to terrorize the community of teenagers up there by, after arresting them for bogus criminal felony acts, he would handcuff them, pepper spray them, beat them up, and then charge them with multiple felonies. It's a small farming community, 60 miles northwest of Chicago, and uh, I got hired by an individual who's a fireman in a, in, a, in a suburb near there, who was a former policeman whose son's got arrested. And one of his children, uh, who was 18 or 19 at the time, got badly beaten in public in front of over 25 witnesses by this local officer. Where, does, the, where does this cop do the beating up? He, well, this time he did it in public in front of about 50 or 60 people. Good heavens. But, but the compound of the matter, then the state police investigated the matter and lied and refused to interview any of the eyewitnesses and said the cop was okay. And the McHenry County Sheriff's investiga uh, people investigated it and lied and said nothing happened, when in fact we know, and it's since been proven, that 
he and did did beat up these kids and has beat up other children. With what initial provocation, if any? Well, it, uh, we believe this guy's got some kind of psychological issues. He might be bipolar or something, because yeah. we've looked at his uh, law enforcement record over the years in Waukegan and both Marengo, and one week he'd beat up three, four, five people. There'd be reports you know, indicating this, and then for two months there'd be nothing, and then we'd see another week of terrible beatings of people he arrested. And he not only beats them up, but he also uh, files a report and it goes to trial, and some of these kids Oh, and they're charging with felonies, ruining their and lives. And some of them get oh, sure. convicted of felony Well, crime. or they'll plead guilty to something because they don't have 15, 20, 30, 40,000 hours yeah. to defend themselves in, in court. What does a felony on your record do for a 16-year-old? Well, you're never going to be able to get into the military. You're never going to go to law school. You're never going to be on a fire department. You're never going to be a policeman. You're never going to get any kind of government job that requires a security clearance. So it basically removes you from about 70% of the workforce. So you had the complaint from the father. What did you do? Well, you know, the first thing, we, we get a lot of complaints from people. The police mistreated us. They did this. They didn't do that. And, and often uh, they're not justified. But just as often, in my experience, they are justified. And, and clients generally are not going to come spend 150 to $250 an hour with us for us to investigate something to tell them you lied to us and, and the police were correct in doing what they mm -hmm. did to you. Uh, they Usually when they walk in there, we have a pretty good idea that, that you know, where there's smoke, there may be fire. So what did you do on this one? On this one, we just started interviewing people. We interviewed people who actually in interviewed the, the incident that happened. But that led us to other victims, and that led us to... Uh, him being fired in Waukegan, and we were always told there was a videotape of him beating uh, uh, somebody he arrested in custody. But the Waukegan Police Department denied it, and they were slick. What they did was they heard about it, they went out and looked at the videotape, wrote a police report about it internally, then they, fired, they asked him to resign. He resigned rather than fire him. So when he went for another law enforcement job, he could say, hey, I've been trained by the Illinois State Police. I am a commissioned law enforcement officer. I resigned my last job. You could hire me. You don't have to pay for me to go through the police academy, which could cost anywhere from twenty to forty thousand dollars. So, a small town like Marengo, this is a very attractive package. Back just a bit. Uh, how does it happen that there was a video of him beating up some other? Well, a neighbor seen him kicking somebody who was handcuffed yeah. for no reason, and the neighbor turned on a video recorder at four thirty in the morning. Unfortunately for him, he turned around and identified himself more or less. Looked full into the video camera. And he was on probation at the time in Waukegan, which allowed Waukegan to get rid of him pretty quickly. But unfortunately, another police department hires him knowing this, and this is where they get in trouble. They knew he had this background. They knew he had this propensity to beat up people who were in custody. Why in the world would they hire such a guy? Cheap money. Uh huh. And it was convenient. Uh, and maybe politics, too. Yeah. So you lined up a lot of testimony about the beatings this guy had administered. This, this, this could wind up costing the city of Marengo several million dollars because really? of their actions. It's in trial, or it's in litigation. It, it's right? in litigation right now. They hired, In other words, they hired an individual who they knew had a propensity to beat individuals who were in custody for no good reason, and they hired him, and lo and behold, he gets hired, and he starts doing it in their community. Yeah. That puts the police and fire commission on the hook, the mayor, the chief of police, and anyone who was involved in that hiring process. Steve Kirby, can you match that? With a I comparable can, story? I can, I can never match Paul's stories. No, huh? But um, we've... Uh, I was just involved in uh, doing some work on the uh, Riley Fox murder, uh, represented... Uh, Remind our listeners about that case. Uh, Riley Fox was a three-year-old girl who last June was abducted from her home, and later that day, about tw 12 hours later, was found, uh, unfortunately, dead in a creek. Her father, in October, was charged with the crime, 
and in June of this year was exonerated through DNA testing. And um, we were involved in working with his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, uh, investigating that we interviewed hundreds of people in, in, uh, in the Wilmington, Joliet area, um, investigated potential you were investigating looking for the murderer or well both or what? we were looking for evidence that would exonerate him from the murder and at the same time obviously the best way to exonerate him from the murder is to find the person that in fact did the murder but then also at issue was the possibility of again police malfeasance in extorting there was yeah i would say that from him was yeah that i'd say that the that there was some certainly some strong evidence that was overlooked in that case um, did the cops produce a confession from the father? He, he didn't. I wouldn't call it a confession. There were some admissions and statements he made uh -huh. at the time, but they were after a 14-hour interrogation sure. where there was a lot of um, a lot of threats and promises that were made uh, that were not on videotape. Yeah, and the yeah. Um, and it was a. I've interrogated over my career literally thousands of, of people. And essentially, you know, after a couple of hours, if I haven't secured the admission, uh, I start to concern myself about the coercion factor. Um, you shouldn't be interrogating somebody overnight for 14 hours. It, it is, in fact, long established and well established that you can get a confession out of almost anybody if you lay on the duress heavily enough and long enough. Yeah, I, you know, for, like I said, I've interrogated thousands of people in my time. It, until a few years ago, I never would have thought that someone would admit to a serious crime like that yeah. if they weren't involved somehow. But it's clear that it occurs time and time again. There's uh, Gary Gauger was, was one that clearly didn't commit the, the offense. There's, there's a story of the fellow that was in Cook County Jail. He admits to the crime. He was in Cook County Jail. There's a trial on right now in, in the city on the Ryan Harris murder. In the Carrico, uh, yeah, in the Carrico case. Sure. Uh, confess I, and we case. go through this over and over again, and, and we assume that. Steve assumes it as well as the rest of us because we assume that the police who are doing these things would not act inappropriately. But, we, but, but through uh, investigation, mostly in the private sector, we've discovered that they aren't appropriate, that they do lie, that they do manipulate, that they do create that they don't follow the rules, that they break laws, that they violate civil rights over and over and over again, especially in these wrongful convictions. In every wrongful conviction case I've been involved in, there's been police and prosecutorial misconduct. There's no accidents. The system doesn't self-correct. That's, that's, that's garbage. It's fairy tales. It's always dug up by people in the private sector who proves that these people did not commit the crime. The system never self-corrects. Why is there that much police misconduct? It isn't necessarily out of perversity and a desire to convict innocent people. It's isn't it as much out of a desire to get the job done well, and you believe there's guilt in front of you and you've got to extract there's it. There's this institutional problem where we have to solve the crime and we have to solve it immediately right now, which is garbage. It's nonsense. Yeah. I mean, most murderers are not out committing another murder tomorrow unless they're an out-of-control serial killer. That's not what we're dealing with here almost ever. We're finding people who are family members. We'll mention them. The Dewalabies were accused of mm -hmm. murdering her daughter, innocent. Fox was accused of kill, killing his daughter, innocent. Sandra Fabiano was accused of molesting a number of, of, of ch children in her daycare center back in the 80s, clearly innocent. And we go, th we go through this over and over, mostly it's incompetence, it's police officers who aren't trained well, it's rogue cops, but, it, but it's worse than that because it goes up to the state's attorney's office, 
who sees these things every day, and they allow it to happen. And they allow cops to come in and lie and to manufacture evidence. And now we're seeing in the science part of these investigations, they've lied about DNA findings. They've lied about rape kits. They've lied about yeah. all kinds of... Well, a state's attorney is an assistant state's attorney, probably right. only two years out of law school. Well, not the ones trying felony cases. The ones trying felony they're murder cases up. have been in that office 12, 13, 14, 15. But they're judged by the convictions that they produce. Well, sure they are. But, but the problem is they allow the police to go out and do these shoddy investigations with mm -hmm. bad evidence, for example, a murder confession. There's no reason they shouldn't be videotaped and audiotaped. None. Don't we have a new law that will now require no, that? No, I, I want to see it work. We do have a new law that requires murder confessions to be videotaped, but here's the problem. The confession has to be videotaped under the law. What, what isn't being videotaped is what leads up to that confession. Yeah. That's what I want to see. I want to see the previous eight hours that was spent with this individual. Because I'm going to tell you something. Juries are very forgiving. They don't care if a cop gets tough in a conf in a interrogation interview situation. They're not going to be upset by that. But the police, their argument has always been, well, juries won't understand it, and, and we have to do things that really, you know, are, you know, are going to upset people. It's not true. When you have a dead baby in the room, people really don't care how you get the confession if they think it's gotten appropriately. This is serious stuff, and it's very vital, and uh, it's really uh, rather uh, compelling as we listen to it. But if you ask ordinary people, what do private cops do? If you ask them, what do you think is the most common activity, they will probably say, well, spying on an errant spouse. Do you, does that kind of work come into your range of activity at all? Normally, I, we, I wouldn't do it, no. Um, I think it's somewhat done, but you know, with the new, all the new divorce laws and stuff, I don't think it's as uh, Particularly no-fault divorce, is that what you mean? Well, yes. If you live in Lake yeah. Forest or Winnicott or Wilmette, you could call me at 847-736-8397. <laughs> I'll yeah. be glad to follow your errant spouse or husband, irregardless of the Illinois divorce laws and, and that sort of thing. So please call but me. only if you live in Lake Forest? That's right. Lake For <laughs> yes, Lake Forest, well, Matt, Kenilworth. Well, Neko, Kenilworth. If you live on the yeah. south side of Chicago? If you live in Harvey, don't call me. I don't want to hear about Why it. Why not? Okay. That's it. You're not <laughs> going to pay me what I want. The yes. reality is is because most people can't afford the cost of a, of a private citizen. Most people uh, can't afford $5,000 to investigate whether or not their spouse is faithful or not. And... If it turns out that the spouse isn't faithful, it's, it has no bearing on the property settlement, which goes back to what I said earlier. Yeah, no fault state. Most cases yeah. are about money anyway. What do you do for corporations? We do a lot of fraud investigations. For fraud on whose part? Employee fraud. Uh, so that's employees stealing from or otherwise uh, kind of violating their uh, their obligations. Well, there are silent partners that every business have, but they don't know about. That's what we do. How do you mean that? Well, a silent partner is the controller who's decided to go into business with the owners of the company, mm -hmm. but the owners are, are unaware that he's gone into business with them because he set up some kind of dummy corporation. He's filching money out of them. Oh, sure, oh, sure. And there's all, all kinds of, by the way, you corporate people, we love to hear from you because you're all being stolen from and we'd be glad to help and you And they've all got the budgets. For a nominal fee, yes, yeah. yes. It, was, it can be, and it can be other businesses cheating, businesses. Um, we did a case down in Juarez, Mexico. I did a case in Juarez, Mexico about about 10 years ago now, where they have what they call maquiladoras down there, which I think loosely translated means a place of assembly, where you could send a number of parts that are manufactured in the United States across to the border, uh -huh. and then they can put them back together and at no added value, and then there's no tariffs on it, so they're very popular down there uh, for manufacturers. And this maquiladora down in Juarez was the owners were, were stealing the parts. Uh, we ended up finding them in a, in hidden in a place in Juarez. It was a great case. It was a lot of fun down there. I bet. <laughs>
<laughs> was. But uh, we think of the great uh, criminals in corporate life, the ones that are now under federal prosecution or potential federal indictment, some of the major firms that have defaulted and have faked their way through, uh, and uh, Enron being one, for example. Well, almost always discovered and uncovered by the private sector, not by police. Believe me, the Houston Police Department could no more investigate the Enron uh, malfeasance and corruption that went on in there that then, then I could perform brain that surgery. Was, that tomorrow. wasn't done by the feds? or by Absolutely any? not. It, eventually, they do the prosecution, and they come and do another investigation. But that was done by independent auditors, independent investigators. Hired, hired by, by whom, then? By board of directors, by interested ah. parties, people who lost uh -huh. their pensions, uh, attorneys who got hired because the um, the pension fund got, got gutted, and they hired somebody like us to go in there and go, hey, take a look at this thing, see what's going on. That's how these things are cracked. I mean, it, it's a fallacy that the FBI or the Chicago Police Department goes into these corporations and conduct these massive uh, fraud investigations. It just doesn't happen. They're, they're trying to keep the peace in the street. That's what the police do. That's what they're really good at, is keeping everyone from just dragging you out of your car and killing you every night because most people are afraid the police will kill you if you try and do but that. Outfits like the Security and Exchange, Exchange Commission are there to monitor large corporations and to uh, smell out and to ultimately to disclose and to prosecute Corporate fraud. It's still a cumbersome government agency. Private uh, individuals in our business are much more uh, likely to discover that kind of fraud than a government agency is because they're attuned to it. They're getting paid to look for something of that and, nature. And the person, you got to get in for for these to come to light. They have to be in somebody's gun sights. And who more is? It's more likely that someone who is potentially a victim or an insider is going to know about this well before. Any government agency, a whistleblower, which which allows then it may be then the we we have a number of large corporate clients and and they have a very one in particular that I'm thinking of has a very very strict code of conduct and it's ethics statements they send out every year and every year coming around October when they send out the ethics statements I know I'm going to get about three or four cases because people are going to say as they're filling out these ethics statements they're going to start naming names, and then I'll go, I've been to New Zealand for this client, I've been to uh, all over the United States for them, um, because and up to Canada, um, and, it's, and it all comes from the inside, and not one of those cases comes from law enforcement. Diogenes spent his time poking around ancient Athens looking for an honest man, as you may remember. He carried a lantern to somehow uh, lighten up the scene so they could find a truly honest man, and he found very few, if any. What's your own observation about human nature and about the human proclivity to cheat, to uh, to injure, to defame, to despoil, or, in fact, to live o always by standards of virtue that uh, God commends to you? I would say, you know, partly what you were saying about Enron and everything else, there's kind of a tr trickle-down effect as far as the loss of morality goes. And when they see people up high stealing, you know, you know, then why shouldn't I steal? Stealing with both hands, yeah. we might add. I mean, honor and honesty are something that is really not happening nowadays in any part of our society. It's not happening in the police department. It's not happening in the prosecutor's really? office. You say, you say these days. You mean, are we more corrupt now than we were, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago? I think no question about it. Really? If, if nothing else, we're more aware of the corruption than we were 20, 30, 40 years That's ago. That's a different matter. Yes. But but I think it's very corrupt now, and I think it's, it's probably I've been in this business since 1981. I mean, it's been corrupt since I've been doing it, and Steve's been in it longer, and Mike even longer than that. 
I mean, between the three of us, been around for 75 years, and we know people have been around much longer, and uh, it, it's it's pretty ugly out there. I think people are a lot more cynical today about authority, um, and so I think that they, and I think people tend to think that they should be allowed to do to do dishonest things. Well, we're treading on some pretty dangerous ground here, at least some quite fascinating issues. If we are more corrupt than we used to be, we have to find a way of accounting for that. And we'll go on with matters of this sort. Right now, we are due to pause for a few totally honest messages from our sponsors, and then we return to Paul Cialino, Steve Kirby, and Mike Carlson. We're talking about the life of the private eye tonight and about the adventures of private eyes. Three of the leading ones in town are my guests tonight. They are Mike Carlson, Steve Kirby, and Paul Cialino. And in just a few minutes, we're going to go to the telephones and, for that matter, to the email. So the lines are open right now. Any question you want to raise, any uh, story you want to share. There are lots of other people out there, both uh, police working for one or another police department or, for that matter, other private eyes, or people simply seeking advice from three well-established private investigators. Give us a call instantly. The number, as ever, is 591-7200. The lines are, at this instant, open to you. And if you're listening at some greater distance and listening over the Internet and you want to put a question or offer a comment or a thought via email, the email address is extension 720 at tribune.com extension 720 as one word at tribune t-r-i-b-u-n-e dot com or 591-7200 what's the history particularly in this area of uh, the of private investigation am i right that the first great american detective agency the pinkertons was founded here in chicago around the time of the civil war he was from actually dundee uh, Dundee, Illinois. Yeah, because he was a Scotsman. Uh-huh. And he was from Dundee. He's buried at Graceland. Um, Alan Pinkerton, how it was, he was a thug. I mean, he was hired by the railroads to basically uh, bust up the unions. Uh, but they were the people who protected Lincoln on Lincoln's uh, train trip to yes. Washington for his inauguration. Yeah, yeah, they didn't do a very good job of it either. <laughs> well, on the train <laughs> yeah, yeah. to Washington, they did, actually. Yeah, okay. They didn't yeah. do a very good job at Ford's Theater. No. And uh, Burns from the famous Burns Detective Agency. He was actually an outstanding investigator, Burns was. Mm -hmm. I read some things about him and cases that he would work. Uh, uh, Pinkerton, I think, was more of a businessman uh, and, uh, and obviously a very successful one. Of course. He was considered a thug by union people, because, if not Pinkerton himself, but the Pinkerton organization, because they were hired to break up uh, strikes and union demonstrations in later years. Ford apparently used the Pinkerton agency to um, simply uh, to uh, attack people at the River Rouge plant when, they, when the UMW, rather when the UAW, was organizing out there. Well, it's classic. Big business is always used private uh, investigators, private security firms to do their bidding for them mm -hmm. because uh, the police and federal government generally does not like to get involved in it, although I would say now that the federal government does do big businesses bidding when they ask them to do it, uh, Halliburton, people like that. I'm told that Steve's father was one of the great figures in the history of private eye work in Chicago. Unequivocally. Ed Kirby was uh, a guy. I met Steve's dad before I met Steve, and, mm -hmm. and Steve's a little older than I am, but... Uh, uh, Steve's dad was one of the finest and uh, 
brightest investigators ever to walk, and, and he taught us all a lot. And he was, he was very active in professional organizations and just basically professionalizing our industry. And he's a mentor to many of us. Speaking of teaching things to others who are aspiring to uh, enter the industry or to do better in the industry, I note that Paul J. Cialino has a book, I think only recently published, is it? Just recently, yes. In the Company of Giants. And the subtitle... I need to go to my reading glasses to check, to check it out, is The Ultimate Investigation Guide for Legal Professionals, Journalists, and the Wrongly Convicted. It's basically, you know, a book about uh, investigating the wrongful conviction. And we're talking about uh -huh. people who were, were fairly certain that are innocent of a hideous crime they've been accused of, generally somebody who's sitting on death row. And I've uh, been instrumental or taken part of and getting six people released from death row, and I clearly and I was involved in a great deal with the Governor Ryan's uh, exoneration mm -hmm. of, of many more, and is and of course pardoning or not pardoning, but commuting everybody on death row to life in prison. And this book is basically a how-to guide, what to look for in in the event of a wrongful conviction. You're pretty well convinced, I gather, as is our friend Rob Warden, that there's a vast amount of wrongful conviction uh, uh, in contemporary. <coughs> American My women. guess would be 10% nationally. 10%? Absolutely. You think 10% of the guys sitting on, um, uh, in the death house? Well, I'll tell you, unequivocally, in Illinois, we proved that over 50% of them were innocent sitting on death row yeah. in the last 25 years. What do you think it is nationally? I mean, we're very yeah. active in Illinois. We're, we're tough. But Texas, uh, horrible, uh, horrible record. Florida, horrible. Uh, Virginia, horrible. Uh, Illinois is, by the grace of God, in a very active journalistic and academic community and, and private industry, we've been able to save many of these people was who it, were innocent. Was it ever thus, or is this a more or less recent uh, dysfunction? Now, you know what? It, it's always been bad. It, the, pro the thing is, though, is that in Chicago we're fortunate. We're blessed with a very active media who will not put up with this stuff. You don't have that in a lot of other towns mm -hmm. in this country. They're afraid of the police. They're afraid of the prosecutors. They're afraid they'll never get another story from them. In Chicago, we have a media that's very proactive, and especially the Chicago Tribune has just done tremendous work in exposing this problem over the years. I want to go to the phones in just an instant. Loads of people are online waiting for you. But a last matter I'm very curious about. Do you guys in your own professional work have any thing to do with investigating and tracking um, organized crime? We, you know, we do some due diligence work for corporations where, where we'll investigate whether or not people that they're going into partnership with uh, have organized crime connections. Um, again, we, you'd have to have a client that would, would, would want to know that. Uh, but mainly that's left then to the official police agencies. In criminal activity for organized, I'd say the majority. I know my father one time conducted a very extensive investigation where a newspaper had published an expose uh, naming a bunch of organized crime figures and they were sued for uh, libel. And he had to reinvestigate the entire process and prove essentially that the newspaper story was mm -hmm. true. So it, it's not unheard of. I would say that what I've been involved in was with Steve primarily uh, was organized crime in the sense that it was a group of people, not, not the you know so-called mafia, Cosa Nostra, but they were involved in uh, basically insurance fraud, uh, sort of what we call pyramiding, where they were selling back and forth between each other to inflate the value of their real estate. And when it got to a certain point where they couldn't turn it again, they were you know having them burned. 
and uh, you know, so that you know, it, it was an organized organized effort, you know, but not like you see how the the pyramiding. That's how you raise the value of a home you're about to burn down or a building you're about to burn down. More, more so with a building, yeah. We'd go out. Let's say you and I go out and buy a you know a six flat someplace in yeah. a bad neighborhood. And then I sell it to you, and then you sell it to Paul, and Paul sells it to Steve. We're all part of the same group, and it keeps in, everybody, you know, inflating your insurance. Every time you sell it, you raise it by 10% or something. At least, yeah. And yeah. then, you know, you, you do some phony rehab work, some cosmetic stuff, make it look good. And sometimes, you know, you can you – can, a couple of investigations Steve and I did a long time ago uh, – basically, you know, a landlord would go out and grab some of the local gangbangers and tell them he better not go near – his building and everything else, and he'd get these gangbangers all mad at him, and then conveniently he'd leave all of his solvents and all the other paint thinners around that he was working on his building with, and these gangbangers would go in there and there'd go the building. You know, this it occurs to me this is one of the modes of illegitimate gain that Tony Soprano was involved in in that series on television. Well, That's so right. Tony was in the real estate business in a yeah, big way yeah. in depressed areas. Well, yes. they, though there they're getting an appraiser to give them false high evaluation. Well, the U.S. attorney right now is in the process of indicting a whole bunch of mortgage brokers who were inflating and having appraisers inflate properties, really? and, and then they were going bankrupt, and the insurance company was taking a big hit on we, them. We probably investigate about 150 mortgage suspected mortgage insurance frauds a year. Uh, it's a regular part of our, of our practice. Well, who's involved? Who's committing the crime? The regular mortgage bro brokers? Uh, I don't want to disparage the mortgage broker industry, but mortgage brokers are typically the people that we're investigating. They used to have, and there's a percentage of them that are dishonest. There's a percentage of them that get um, the appraisers involved. The appraisers have to be involved for it to, to work to any degree. But we've had simple ones even where one person, we had a home in Ford City, uh, or Ford Heights rather, um, you know, very impoverished area. He, the house was probably worth sixty seventy thousand dollars he sold it to his father who had was in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's for a hundred and eighty thousand dollars had an appraiser phony the appraisal got the money his father obviously never made payment number one uh, never knew he owned the property and that's that's a classic mortgage insurance fraud where so he got a hundred and eighty thousand dollars for a seventy thousand dollar property his father never made the one payment, and then the bank was stuck with the loan. You remember Murphy's Law, famously, is if anything can go wrong, it will. Is there a comparable law? If any illegitimate gain is possible, it will be taken? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, absolutely. there's no question about it, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the the same legitimate business, yeah. Human nature that you were voicing earlier. Uh, yeah, they, is, if is, there's a way you could steal, people will figure it out. And if there's a thing that you can steal. I mean, we've had people yeah. steal bags of chlorine. I mean, just incredibly stupid. Weird. I don't know. Just incredible. I mean, if it's there, they'll steal it. It's, you know. People, people will figure out a way to make money on anything. On anything. I, if paper uh -huh. cups, uh, you know, lamps, it doesn't matter. Telephones, parts, oil. I mean, look at the city. The city of Chicago is taken for literally hundreds of millions every year yeah. by, by people. And, and it's, it's never going to end. Because a lot of cases they don't want it to end. That's what politics by work. For hundreds of millions by people who work for the city. Sure. Or else those well, just, who just in stolen time. Stolen time and a yeah. good deal else yeah. is what I carry have carried on about for years here. Yeah. The corruption tax, which and is very high. Yeah, nobody's listening Chicago. to you, are they? See Edmund Hillary. <laughs> well, lots of people. Edmund Hillary <laughs> philosophy because it's there. Yeah. Why did you steal it? Because yeah. it was there. Yeah. Climb yeah. the mountain yeah. because That's it's right. there.
Uh, we're going to stop right now for some commercials and then right on to the phones and to the email. Uh, all the lines are taken at the moment, all the phone lines. So if you're trying to reach us, you're not getting through, but you will get through if you try a little bit later, especially when we say goodnight to a prior caller. The number remains 5917200. And for email, the address is, of course, extension720 at tribune.com. Right on to your contributions after this. What do you guys like to be called? Private eyes, private dicks, what exactly? I, I think private investigator. Private investigator. That's the Tony way. Or private detective. Private or detective. Pro professional investigator. Yeah. Sounds even better. Uh, the three professional investigators who are with us tonight are Mike Carlson, president of Probe Incorporated, Steve Kirby, president of Edward R. Kirby and Associates, and Paul Cialino, uh, president and owner of Paul J. Cialino and Associates. And um, we will go directly to the phones for your questions to any or all of them. 591 7200, and you are the first. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, my question is for all three of the investigators. Uh, I'm wondering how many uh, employees the agencies have. Like when someone hires you, uh, do you have a team of investigators that are working the case, or do you pretty much do all the work yourself, or how, how does that work? Well, I think, speaking for myself, this is Paul, uh, I've had as many as 15 employees, as little as three, depending on what needs to be done. I mean, if it's something, if I, something I consider a critical interview, I always do it. If it's something such as courthouse research or serving a subpoena or summons, uh, an employee would do it, and, and we're all a little bit different. Yeah, this is Mike Carlson. It, uh, basically, uh, it depends on, uh, we investigate fires and explosions, and it depends on the, the size of the incident. Uh, I do a lot, a lot of car fires. I do them by myself, but major structure fires and stuff will bring out, you know, all of our investigators plus outside consultants like engineers and that type of thing. And this is Steve. I have uh, eight investigators that work with our firm, and then we have a, an office staff that... Uh, that we have on, and it just like Paul, it depends on what's what needs to be done, uh, and the level of sophistication. Sooner or later, we're going to get a call, but I'm preempting it by uh, anticipating it from some young person who's going to say, "I really would like to get become a private investigator. How do I begin? Should I go into the this occupation or this profession? What do you say to such people?" Uh, I would say it's a worthwhile profession. I would suggest. Uh probably going into public law enforcement for at least a little while and then uh, and or working for you know sort of a, an apprenticeship under somebody like Steve or Paul mm -hmm. or myself it allows you to um, really make you can make a difference it's a I've always told my my kids that I don't really care what you do for a living it doesn't matter to me as long as you're doing something that matters and I think that this job is a job that'll that can make a difference you can help people recover lost merchandise, you can locate missing people, you can get people off a of death row, you can do a lot of important things. It's not a business that you're going to become extremely wealthy in. You can make a nice living doing it. It's a physical business. And most importantly, it actually, it is a business. You have to run it like a business. It's a tough business. And, and it's, uh, it's very competitive. There's a lot of people who think there's nothing to it. Just go ahead and get a license or uh, get a business card printed that says you're a private investigator and go out and start doing it. There's much more to it. I, we, we are, the standards we are uh, held to are much higher than public law enforcement. 
I mean, we have licensing agencies, insurance companies, and we got everybody in the world watching every move we make. Yeah. So, so this is a tough business. It's it's not something I would take lightly or or get into because you think it's something uh, like you've seen done on TV because it's nothing like TV. Picking up on one of the matters we've discussed already tonight, uh, namely false convictions. Joseph from Big D, he says. I suppose Big D is Detroit. I'm not that'd sure. Be, that'd Dallas. be Dallas. Yes. Well, of course it's D. Dallas. Yes. Of course. Of course it's Dallas. How stupid of me. Uh, asks by email, why are the juries making these false guilty verdicts? Juries almost never get the true picture. They get a picture that's very tainted, that's very restricted, that's that's often the judge, and you know, often the judge is the third prosecutor, second prosecutor in the room, and they're pre-inclined to really hammer this defendant who they believe with their whole heart is guilty. So juries often don't get the whole picture. They don't hear. Uh, and often there's evidence that's been uncovered that hasn't been turned over to the defense. They can't even they can't even you know pr uh, show it in court. So juries often make the right decision when they have all the facts, mm -hmm. but often make the wrong decision when they don't have all the facts. Well, I, I think Paul would agree with this too, and he has a lot more involvement in this than I do. But one of the hidden secrets about these wrongful convictions is that the defense counsels are off, yeah. oftentimes terrible. It's, they just do a terrible job. They're incompetent. Uh, these are sometimes court-appointed lawyers. Well, it doesn't. Private no, attorneys too. Yeah. Public defenders can do a great job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's not it's not because they're not getting paid. It's just because they're bad lawyers. Yeah. We go back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero, and you are on the air. Good evening. Yes. Hello. My name is Gail, and I mm -hmm. live up in Antioch, Illinois. And it's a pleasure to talk to you, Mr. Rosenthal. Well, he's not here. Rosenberg is filling in. I'm, I'm sorry. I, oh, I am so sorry. That's all right. I, I like to listen to you around the campfire up in, uh, I have nine acres up in here in Antioch, and uh -huh. I love to listen to you around the fire. You're so articulate. It's just wonderful. My question is, uh, um, when somebody takes an insurance policy out on you, why is it that you are not notified of that? Because this seems to be a real problem. Uh, you know, I watch these TV shows and on the cable and everything, and it, and it just seems that, you know, these people don't even know that somebody is going to kill them because, you know, they don't know that the, all this insurance is taken out on them. Don't you think that there should be a law that, that if your insurance policy is taken out on your life, you should be notified? Well, that's because insurance companies are inherently evil, and all they care about is collecting premiums. But I'll let Steve talk about that. <laughs> now, the, the truth of the matter is is that there, it's not like TV. There is a, there is a, you know, you can't take a policy out on someone without them signing off on it. You can't take a life insurance policy out on somebody and them not know it. Really? Really, but the case that you mentioned earlier of the employer who took one out, who, who whose case was that? That was Steve. mine. Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, he took it out, but the insurance company. But the kid knew that he was taking it out. No, he, he didn't forge his signature. No, he forged his yeah. signature. I forged yeah. it. Or they take it out on juveniles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. But forgery is certainly. Oh, forgery is a big part of it. Isn't that's it? why they call yeah. it insurance fraud. Sure. Uh huh. Who knows what evil lurks in the heart? Uh, of there's a lot of evil out you there. You guys, yes. you do. The shadow. Yes. Five nine one seven two double zero. As we go to the next caller, good evening. Hi, good evening. Um, I'm currently reading a book called Freakonomics, and your your oh, yeah. producer just said that that I think Stephen Lovett had been on your show. Oh yes, we spent a good two hours with him recently. And I'm sorry I missed that. I, I heard him on John Williams' show at one point. But anyway, at one point he is talking to or writes about a guy who sold bagels, kind of based on an honor system. Mm-hmm. 
And he goes on to say, um, the bagel guy says that higher level people seem to steal or not pay for the bagels more than lower level employees. And at one point he, he says, um, Feldman wondered if perhaps the executives cheated out of an overdeveloped sense of entitlement. And I just wonder if your guests would comment on that. Yeah. You know, in the uh, con rackets, uh, experienced con artists often speak about the good mark, that is a good victim, being somebody who has a very well-developed sense of larceny, meaning that people with a lot of money sometimes uh, are ready to cheat and steal in some subtle ways, and that's how they got all the money. That's a very cynical view, but maybe that has something to do with the case. I think it's absolutely valid. I don't mean to jump in, but I, I it, the law is skewed towards it as well. I mean, if you're an executive and you steal $150,000 out of the company coffers, you'll probably get probation in Cook County in Chicago. If you're a someone who is trying to feed their family is desperate and you rob a currency exchange of fifteen hundred dollars you get 25 years of hard labor it's you, it's ridiculous you remember the great woody guthrie line the bandit robs you with a gun the banker with a fountain pen no, no words were ever truer <laughs> back then and today well i'd like to think that that's not really the case yeah. i know a lot of people in corporate life who i'm sure are as pure as the driven snow indeed. I'd, I'd like to meet them indeed thank you yeah. very much uh, gentlemen <laughs> we thank you sir for the call um, well, I don't, somehow my mind runs to Shakespeare uh, tonight. Um, Hamlet says to Polonius, Polonius says, well, I'll treat these actors who've come to Elsinore as well as they deserve. And uh, Hamlet says, uh, if you treat people as well as they deserve, which, which of us would escape whipping? <laughs> you know, so treat them according to your own honor rather than according to their deserts. Uh, but you guys have developed a very cynical view of human nature, haven't you? I think we're cautious. I'm, I'm not so sure we're cynical. I, we, we've, we've seen people climb to the greatest, heart, greatest heights with honor and integrity, yeah. and we've seen them sink to the lowest. And we've seen people who entitlement is a big problem. Entitlements, especially nowadays, with younger kids, these kids in their 20s and, mm -hmm. and late teens, they, they think they're entitled to the BMW. We're entitled to be the vice president. We're entitled to this. Uh, and I think our generation was it was work ethic. Work, so that, work, has work. To, that has something to do with the way they were reared, or rather the way they were badly reared. Well, I, I, I think that's part of it. And I thought also, I mean, it's just society in general and the way this way we mm. direction we've been moving in. Yeah, I, I don't think that I wouldn't consider myself a cynic. I think that I'm skeptical of a lot of of a lot of things that people say, but I don't I don't really think I'm cynical. And I think we developed sort of a gallow sense of humor too about mm -hmm. what we've yeah. seen. Well, now what about in your own business? If there's dishonesty that somehow haunts and bedevils all modes of enterprise. Does it also show up in private investigators? Oh, I'd say definitely, yeah. yes. Yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. yeah you got to watch them little what, what do they do when they go wrong? Well, they steal time. They steal. They want to steal phone time. They want to steal time in general. They'll, they'll lie if they can get away with it, if they think they're not being watched, just like a lot of employees will. And then there's the employees who's exceptional, who works, you know, I mean, works like a, uh, like there's no tomorrow and don't do anything for you. But, I mean, we're, we're not exempt from, you know, the problems regular employers have. Can a private investigator, somebody who's working for you, perhaps also uh, go for a special kind of illegitimate gain in which he seeks some sort of payoff from someone whom he otherwise might uh, uh, might disclose? Well, you have a responsibility as the as the license holder or the agency owner to, and just like any attorney would, uh, head of a law firm has an op an obligation to make sure that people are working for him or doing their clients justice. We do too, and we keep 
we keep pretty close quality control on the on the mm -hmm. report. There's very few reports that go out of my office that I don't see. We run we have about 70 cases right now that we're I'm familiar with every single one of them. Do you ever find yourself investigating somebody who's on your investigative staff? I haven't had that problem. Uh, I've I've well, certainly you make inquiries. I mean, when, yeah. when you know, misbehavior is occurring, you, you've got to start looking at them more closely. But we screen our people so closely, or they're so highly recommended, it, it, that's generally not a problem. So, uh, but we're much more careful than the average employer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean we've, we've seen all of our clients been snake bit by, by seemingly good employees who have gone bad. So we're careful. I mean, anyone who's handling our money or our books... I can assure you we're watching them very closely. It's not, you know, we don't give them the blank check, sign it, and take care of it. It's just not going to happen in our business. We've got another quick round of commercials that are due. We'll take care of that and then directly back to the phones and to the email. Uh, all the phone lines are taken, but uh, if you're trying to reach us, keep trying, especially after we say goodnight to somebody else. And, of course, the email is open, that uh, address, extension720 at tribune.com. Quick reintroduction of our guests and right back to the phones. They are all leading private investigators in town. Paul Cialino runs the firm of the same name, Paul J. Cialino and Associates. Steve Kirby runs the firm of Edward R. Kirby and Associates. Mike Carlson runs Probe Incorporated. And we go back to the phones on 591-7200. One line is available, by the way, right now. If you were trying to reach us, make another try. And here is the next caller. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I'm curious, as to your profession, are, do you have a regulatory body such as the Department of Registration and Education, number one, and number two, on an investigation, if you identify yourself as a private investigator, are you required to give your identification or could you just turn around and walk away? Well, I don't think we are licensed by the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation, which is now merged into banking and Finance and real estate, or I don't know, but they're pretty yeah. evil over there. We don't like them that much. That's uh, not true. <laughs> that's not true. We, <laughs> no, love, we them. love them. And and no, I don't think legally we are required to give you any sort of identification or prove who we are. We're basically private citizens that are licensed by the state of Illinois. Yeah. How did I resist until this moment uh, asking you this trite but always interesting question? Uh, how do you, what you do and the style of your work? How does all of that compare? to what Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe does in the movies, or all the other private eyes that we see in well, basic American crime fiction. Well, in 30 years, I've never been punched out. And never. they get punched out in every 30 minutes. Um, it's, um, you know, at times the, the work you, we do can be dangerous, but if you're intelligent, you try to analyze the danger, assess it, and then take steps to avoid the danger. Um, it, it, clarify, I think that last caller wanted to know if if the people we approach have to identify themselves to us or answer our questions, and of course, it's no. The answer to that is. I've written, we've got as much power and clout as the 7-Eleven clerk down the street. Mm -hmm. We operate on, on basically street smarts and conversation. I mean, we have to get people who like us to talk to us or get them to the point where they'll talk to us so we'll go away and won't bother them anymore. Do you ever carry firearms while yeah. you're working? Yes. You do? Yes. 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 You all do? Yes. Why? Why? Well, we operate in a lot of dangerous areas. I mean, we're in a lot of areas in the city. Nobody else is going to go unless you're in, a, mm -hmm. a, a, in an armed position. Um, we're, we're, the licensing for a firearm is stringent, and the insurance costs are astronomical. 
But uh, we, we all carry weapons from time to time. I mean, most time, mine's, you know, left at home in a safe. Have you ever had to pull your pull your weapon out and use it? Not, not in this line of work, no. 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 So, why carry them? Uh, it's a precaution, yeah. you know. It, mm-hmm. it, it's strictly, it's a precaution. It's yeah. a safety measure. You don't show them. You don't talk about them. And, and God forbid if you ever have to use it. Are you carrying right now? No. We had an FBI fellow in here just recently, and he was carrying a weapon. They it didn't probably, occur to they, me to they, ask him, but... They need one less than we do, okay? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> we go back to yeah. the phones. 591-7200 is the number, and you are next on the air. Good evening. Gee, you sound, you sound better than my favorite private eye, Guy Noir. Oh, I love him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, Paul Ciolino. Yes. Um, first of all, what's the name of the, your book in it, the... It's called In the Company of Giants. Of Giants, and okay. And just punch it in on Google and you can find it. Okay, I, that's what I wrote down, but I wasn't sure whether it was yeah. correct. Um, regarding the Sandra Fabiano case... What year was that? Do you know? That started in about 1984, 1985. 1984, 85, and that went on for a long time. Well, frankly, we just finished it. The civil case just ended less than a year ago. So really? Yes. Let, let's review that. Did well, she well, hire you? Hold on a minute, ma'am. Let's review that. Well, case. I wanted to ask my question. Before you do, let's review the case so that all of our listeners oh. know what we're talking about. Well, Sandra Fabiano was uh, operated a um, daycare center out in the south suburban area and was accused of essentially mass molestation uh, beyond belief. And then I had very little involvement in that case, but it was primarily Paul's case. Uh, Sandra Fabiano is one of the finest human beings I've ever met anywhere in the world. And and she was horribly accused of of this nonsense of molesting seven little girls under the age of five. Well, that was part of the total social panic about... uh, Yeah, it was a big problem. False memories were cultivated in kids or in or disgruntled adults with regard to their aged parents remembering sexual abuse that had never happened. Well, we, we know false, the, 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 the recovered memory syndrome is nonsense. It's psychologically impossible. It doesn't happen. Yeah. But this wasn't a false memory syndrome case. This was a case where they had got the Palos Hills Police Department had talked a bunch of parents and three- and four- and five-year-old children into saying that Sandra Fabiano had sexually assaulted them in a daycare center with 60 kids present and seven or eight staff But that's cultivating or stirring up false memory. Absolutely. Well, not so much false memory. It it happened. It happened last week or last month, and it wasn't something they recovered in their 30s or 40s. So uh, the Fabiano family wound up spending a couple million dollars in defending her, and I I was a primary investigator in proving that the case was just garbage. How did you prove it? How did you prove it? Well, we, we interviewed probably four 500 people who had put their kids through there, uh, uh, children who were 18, 19, 20. I mean, we just basically showed how absurd it was, absurd that she could have molested these kids. A, to, physically it couldn't have happened the way the authorities were claiming it happened, and B, she's just not the, the type of person that would have ever done anything like that. And you say she's now recovering? Well, they're still recovering. I mean, this is one of the finest families I've ever who, been associated who do they, with. Who do they sue to recover? They sued the city of Palos Hills. Uh-huh. And the city of Palos Hills wrote them a nice check eventually, but almost 20 years later. Yeah. They fought them tooth and nail and Terrible. didn't want to pay. But they did pay eventually. Yeah. Ma'am, you had a further question? Yes. 
Who was the state's attorney at the time? Well, the prosecuting state's attorney was a woman by the name of Mary Ellen Cagney, and I believe uh, Rich Burke were, were the prosecutors in the case. But Richie Daly brought that case, and he knew it was wrong, and he knew it was right. false, and uh, you know it was a, a train wreck under Daly's administration as a state's attorney. You assert that he knew it was false? Uh, a, a, anyone with an IQ over 40 knew this woman didn't molest anybody. That's what? the way I felt. I don't know the people at all. You know, I don't even live around there. And uh, that was my gut uh, feeling. Well, I need a little bit more uh, development of that thought. Thank you, ma'am, for the call. If he knew it was false, why then did Richie Daly bring the case? Well, I think that as the state's attorney, you sit up there on this, on this, you know, this plateau, and you're overlooking everything, and you kind of wave your wand, and things uh -huh. happen. And he should have known. Anyone with any common sense would have looked at this case. Any good investigator would have said, "Listen, this is this is absurd. It could not have happened." the way these allegations are being made. And these police officers who did the initial investigation had never, ever, ever worked yeah. a sex case of any type. Have uh, either Steve or Mike also had any encounter with false memory syndrome cases? Not with false memory, per se, but I think a lot of this happens with the child molesting is that we're all, you know, parents, and we're also afraid mm -hmm. of child molesters that when somebody starts pointing a finger at somebody, everybody, you know, jumps on the bandwagon. Uh, we've done some, some criminal defense work on people accused of molestations. I don't know that it's ever developed into the, the terms of Fabiano or the McMartin case or, or any of those horrific cases. Do you know about that psychiatrist who was on the staff at Presbyterian St. Luke's? Yes. Who ran a whole ward in which he drew people in on That's that That's big basis? money, Milt. It's big money. And, and doctor and the psychiatric community got on this thing big and... And a woman by the name of Elizabeth Loftus, yeah. who's a psychologist. I know her well. A, a, a brilliant woman. She's been on this program a few times. A, a dear friend of mine. I've worked with her for years in these uh -huh. sort of cases. Has proved unequivocally there's no such thing as recovering a memory. You can't. Something cannot happen to you when you're two years old, and you're going to get it back when you're 30 or 35. And, and we've almost, in all these cases, proven it's financially motivated or attention motivated. But 99% of the time, it's about money. Well, with a woman who's gone to some a hypnotic psychologist uh, to uh, handle her personal problems and then is talked into often using and misusing hypnotic techniques which the therapist doesn't understand because she learned the techniques just in a weekend seminar absolutely uh, and but she but but the patient client is talked into suddenly remembering that her daddy abused her when she was seven years old uh, uh, she's not doing it for money she's doing it out of uh, she's been talked into it and, and and usually these are people who have really screwed up lives and they're looking for a reason Intentive. why yeah. they're so screwed yeah. up and and this it's produced absolute havoc this in this semi for years. absolutely yeah. and and i think we've beaten it back now to the point where prosecutors are no longer prosecuting them cases they're too nervous to do it so well you've had a few very strong judgments like the yeah. one uh uh that uh that they had to pay over at um, Pres St. Luke's yeah. for Dr. Braun, I believe his That's name right. was, and they sued for some seven or ten million dollars and settled for that. And, and they deserved every penny of it for what they went through and, yeah. and this nonsense, this 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 voodoo, witch doctor nonsense that went on with this recovered memory syndrome. I, I've worked with well over two thousand victims of sexual assault. Hmm. I've yet to met a woman who forgot that she was sexually assaulted. Yeah. And then recovered the memory 20 years later. Fascinating. We've done programs on this problem a number of times in the past. We pause right now for a last round of commercials, then directly back to our guests, namely Steve Kirby, Mike Carlson, and Paul Cialino. And if you've been trying to reach us on the phone, try again. We've now got, I see, one or two lines actually available, 591-7200.
And we go back to the phones. Here is the next caller. Good evening. Hi, Milt. First time caller, long time listener. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to ask, I think what these gentlemen are doing is so terrific. And I wanted to ask them if they ever did pro bono work. We all take, uh, we'll all take pro bono work once in a while. It depends on the you know the instances and the you know specific. What cases. have you done pro bono recently? Uh, basically, I've taken some fire cases uh, where uh, I, I want to be real careful because I don't want to embarrass anybody. Sure. But, uh, probably the most significant one I did was where uh, there's a fire out in the western suburbs, and it was uh, all white investigators. It happened to be a black family, and uh, there was some question as to whether the investigators were biased. And I went out with a uh, fire investigator from Champaign as well, and we both went through the fire and found out the investigators actually had done a very good job. But we took it because of uh, one of the families that was involved with it. Mm-hmm. I, I unfortunately uh, have done more pro bono cases than I ever care to admit to, but every death penalty <laughs> case, wrongful conviction case I've been involved in has been pro bono. Mm-hmm. We thank you, man, for the call. Thank you very much. And Bye-bye. we'll go quickly to another on five nine one seven two double zero. That's before she got a chance to ask you to take on some yeah, case of Don't call me. <laughs> call Kirby. He'll do it. All right. Yeah. And here's the next caller. Hello. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Good evening. My wife will be traveling uh, on business out of state next week, and I have reason to believe that she's having an affair with a, a man that she'll be traveling with. Uh, if I wanted to have a private investigator uh, track her while she was out of state, uh, how would I go about uh, finding one? And do you have any other advice? You'd call somebody locally. We we could always refer someone out of state. And if you live in Lake Forest, Winnetka, or Wilmette, we'll follow her for you. Um, the, yeah. the other thing, we hopefully she's not listening to the show tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Where <laughs> is she at the moment, sir? Yeah. But um, yeah, I think that you don't want to take it out of the phone book. You need to get a good referral. You need to, if you have an attorney or you have somebody a, a business, someone that's had a business relationship with an investigator, someone that can because. Frankly, you're putting a lot on the line uh, and, and trusting this person to do a good job. Your marriage is on the line. Yes. And you want to make sure that it's done right and don't pick the cheapest one and don't pick the uh, the sleaziest, the sleaziest uh, you know, or, or somebody that uh, looks like they came out of central casting. You want somebody professional that's going to do a good job for the money that you pay. But by the way, this is a very difficult thing to do. We we get calls like this all the time. My wife, my husband's going out of town. They're going to be staying at the Bel Air in Los Angeles. Uh, see if they're cheating on us. So it's it's just not that simple. It's 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 costly, expensive. It's time consuming. It's hard. And, and but you do you do sometimes take such cases? Oh, oh absolutely. We take them all the time. And 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 Steve and I especially refer cases uh, internationally and nationally all the time. The colleagues mm-hmm. we worked with over the years. So you got to find someone who's reputable, who knows what they're doing, and, and can steer you in the right direction. What sort of uh, price range should a person expect to pay? It depends. Yeah, well, it depends where you're living at. In Chicago, it could be anywhere from uh, 90 to uh, 200 dollars an hour. New York, higher. Los Angeles, about the same. Uh, but Sam Spade, down... Sam Spade used to just get 50 dollars a day and expenses. Yeah, well, Sam Spade <laughs> was probably broke too, you know, <laughs> and he wasn't driving, uh, paying car insurance yeah. and liability yeah. insurance like we are. But in and he was Florida, doing it at, you could. He get, was doing it in the 1930s. That's right, 60, 65 dollars an hour. Where, where's your wife going to? Uh, out of state, uh, far to the south, west, west east, urban yeah. area, small town. Small town. Well, it, it's it's probably relatively inexpensive, but the other hand, you're going to find somebody that's competent. That's what you want to know. You're, you're probably going to be looking at spending a couple of thousand bucks minimum. Uh-huh. Uh, a couple of thousand dollars. I mean, if you're if someone's going to be following her for a couple of days, and look, you know, and and getting it right because. She, 
you also need to use typically more than one investigator on these kinds of But cases. I've got a question for you, sir. Suppose you did hire somebody, and the report that came back was, no, we saw no evidence of that. Would that uh, put to rest all of your uh, concerns and all of your doubts? No. No, no. it shouldn't. Yeah. No. There's red flags, right? She's, you know, not concealing her credit card or cell phone bills. She's ducking out of the room for conversation. She's withdrawn emotionally. She's kicked up the Victoria's Secret uh, um, yeah, wear in the house, and you're not seeing most of it. Uh, there, there's always signs, and generally when people suspect something like this, uh, their antenna's up for a good reason. Uh-huh. Uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to know is if, if, if a private investigator, if they're staying in the same hotel, of course, on business, how, how does one monitor several different hotel rooms without being detected? Well, we, you know, for instance, hopefully they might know someone in hotel management or security could let them know but it's, it's a long story call us we'll be glad to i talk am to in a shakespearean it. mood and really what i want to get across to our caller is what hamlet says to the ghost rest rest perturbed spirit uh it's there are some things maybe one ought not to get get into but i know nothing about the case none of us do we thank you sir for the call thank you very much good night and we'll go quickly to another hello you're on the air this is Ruth from Ringle, and I was wondering, is it advisable to hire a private investigator if you already hired a lawyer? Well, it depends upon the case, I'm sure, but the lawyer uh, would know whether he thinks you need a private investigator. And you should, yeah, you should work through that. I mean, the, the investigator and the lawyer should be working hand-in-hand hand because a lot of clients that hire us without the advice of an attorney or, or around their attorney, they typically want information that really doesn't help their case that kind of falls in the nice to know but they're spinning their wheels so you really do need to work with your attorney and and this is Paul ma'am I I have a little bit different opinion on it I uh, lawyers always think they're great investigators and know how to do these things I, I I have never seen a case that was done well that wasn't done well without an investigator involved in it um, lawyers litigate, lawyers inv investigators investigate, and that's what we do best. If it needs investigation, you should hire a professional. Our thanks to the caller. What are the categories of cases or of investigations that you are involved in that we haven't even talked about tonight at all? We've uh, talked about various different kinds of investigations. Is there something we've left out? Well, I think a lot of our investigations, you know, like uh, say my case fires, um, we run into you know different aspects like uh, juvenile fire setters where mm -hmm. you know you go in and talk to the family and you find out you know the child's a bedwetter maybe torturing animals and that kind of stuff and when you look at some of your historic uh, serial killers and stuff that's often how they started out unfortunately and a lot of parents you know I've run into uh, you know I've gone in doing a house fire and I start going through the house I find like uh, plastic sheets on a 12 year old's bed and, you know, it's not really my call, but I'll suggest to the parents that maybe, uh, you know, the kids set the fire and, you know, maybe they should talk to somebody. Get some psychiatric help. Yes, definitely. You will yeah. sometimes make that recommendation. I, you know, I do it morally. I feel obligated to yeah. do it, yes. We'll, we'll get involved in a lot when parents want to know if their kids are using drugs or if their uh -huh. nanny's abusing their uh, kids when they're not home or stealing or doing something inappropriate with their boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever the case may be. Uh, we get involved in a lot of a personal uh, security and protection issues with people. Yeah. Would you ever, if somebody who hires you is also somehow visibly involved in some criminal activity, then report that person to the authorities? Walk away. At the first sign of anything inappropriate, walk away. If rather rather than turn them in. I'm not the police, okay? But I'm walking uh -huh. away from the minute I see something that, that's inappropriate. Like what? Unethical, drug use, theft, uh, anything that, mm -hmm. that would tend to get me in trouble. 
Yeah, we'll occasionally have people call up and ask us to bug phones, sure. things like that. I mean, that's just completely, as Mike might as well ask me to commit an armed robbery. We're yeah. not going to do it. Uh, quickly, back to the phones for one or two more very brief calls. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, I was wondering uh, specifically with Paul and uh, Mr. Kirby, wh uh, what percentage of your cases are corporate-oriented, are corporate-type investigations where you're dealing with an organization that has internal problems? Uh, I would, for me, for Paul, it's 20, 25%. It's probably 80% of our work. 80%. So you're really in the corporate business. Yes. What, what types of cases are you doing? Fraud, uh, due diligence, background, uh, sometimes mergers and acquisitions, uh, background type of work, complex litigation. And, and how do you compete with the real big guys like a, a Pinkerton detective agency that you know claims to be the nationwide specialist in those kinds of things? Uh, uh, they're, not circles they're, not, they're not competition. There are some that are. The bigger ones you're thinking maybe are like Kroll and a few of those. We, we, I think our, our competitive edge is that we're, you're dealing with the owner when you call me. All right, thanks to you, sir, for the call. You know, and when it comes to due diligence and investigating backgrounds, uh, I wonder if you've ever had this. There's a certain kind of organization which occasionally has people making, um, representing themselves falsely about their backgrounds and about their achievements, and for that matter, about their education. It's the university business. Occasionally, somebody shows up or is exposed to have been professing uh, for years and never having actually earned a Ph.D. or never oh. having actually written the articles he claims to have written. In the uh, That's never been, you've never encountered that in oh, your yeah, business, have you? encountered people with fraud, fraudulent... But uh, in universities, I mean. No, not in the you've university. You've never been hired setting. by a university. No. Oh, we see doctors still committing fraud all the time in their resumes. I, show me a uh -huh. resume that's more than 15 pages long, I'll show you somebody who's lied. Really? Absolutely, almost every time. Most show me a young expert with a long resume, I'll show you someone who's lied on their resume. So somebody who's just gotten their Ph.D., just got out of school, and uh -huh. they did this, they did this. The, I can't tell you how many times I've taken a list of articles they supposedly written, yeah. and maybe some professor wrote them, and they might have contributed in some small way. But them being the name author on it, absolute garbage. I, I've destroyed half a dozen psychologists and psychiatrists That's fascinating. for lying on their resumes. Most of the physicians who come on this program, and they're well-established academic physicians, have bibliographies that are 20 pages uh, long. Send it over to us. We'll take a look at it before they come on. You'd have a nice <laughs> chat with them about it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, we are out of time. That that puts me off balance a bit because lots of my friends who are academics have very, very long bibliographies. Uh, and some are well-deserved, Milt, but on the yeah. other hand, there's a lot of them who have gilded that lily and uh -huh. lied to get them qualifications and that big expert witness fee. <laughs> well, we need to... Investigate that. For, I need to think about that. Investigate everybody. Always hire us and investigate the hell out of it. We're, that's what we're here for. Uh, that's Paul Cialino, who doesn't really seem to trust very many people um, and is undoubtedly a major figure in private investigative work in town, as are Steve Kirby and Mike Carlson, who have been our guests tonight. It's been a wonderful program. I thank you very much for having joined us.